Open up your Bibles this morning, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last week we began this chapter, and we saw that Paul is making some introductory comments about the matter of Christian liberty. If this is your first Sunday here, we preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. And we're in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Christian liberty is the truth that God has given us to, to exercise freedom in areas that he has not forbidden. However, we are not to use our freedom to do something that might cause someone else to stumble and fall. He lays out the foundation of Christian liberty, Paul does in this chapter. And he says last week that Christian liberty needs to be founded upon knowledge and love. Love without knowledge, as we saw last week, is not real love. Neither is knowledge without love is not real knowledge. And that is the issue at hand here in Corinth. The question that they're asking Paul is, is it okay to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. You see, in Corinth at this time, this was the norm for the culture. Corinth was filled with pagan temples in which people went and worshipped all kinds of false gods. And it was, they would bring an animal to a priest, a pagan priest in one of these temples in the name of one of these gods. And the priest would take part of that animal and offer it up as a burnt offering to this false god. The other parts of the meat were either kept at the temple for events or worship at the temple. And, or they were sold in the marketplace to the public. So some of the Corinthians in this church are saying, Paul, the best steak we could buy in town is there. Is that a sin to eat meat at the marketplace that was offered once to an idol? Is this meat off limits? And we know that this matter must be approached by knowledge and love. And Paul says last week, we all know that you guys have knowledge. But what you're greatly lacking in is love. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes you number one, makes you take center stage. And if you use your knowledge and your liberty here, or you, and what you think is right that God forbids, when maybe he hasn't really forbidden it, you are using your knowledge then to beat your brothers and sisters up. Instead, you ought to use love and exercise love with knowledge to build them up, to encourage them in their faith, to make them stronger believers. And so Paul is going to continue now in verse 4, and he says there, and that's our key word, therefore, like I've taught you many times, we'll always look for those connecting words in the scriptures to show us where Paul is going with his argument. So based on this knowledge and love thing, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. 
Again, we see quotation marks around some of those phrases. That's not in the original manuscripts because in Greek there's no quotation marks like that. There's no punctuation like that. But it is implied that Paul is quoting the Corinthians. This is why the ESV and other translations put quotation marks there to help us understand that he is quoting what this knowledge is that they were making an argument for. The people who were saying we have freedom to eat is saying idols aren't real. You're not really eating meat that was sacrificed to that God. That God doesn't even exist. And so Paul says, we know that an idol is not real. We know that there's only one true God. And yet this matter of idolatry was at the heart of the issue here. It was making some people very uncomfortable. While other people were saying, God has not forbidden this. It's just meat. (laughs) It's just food. It's not anything to do with worshiping this God. And so the idolatry of this time, of course, as was the issue throughout the scriptures, was always one that an idol is, is when you make your own gods from your own hands. You fashion them out of wood or stone. And the scripture has much to say about this. We know this is the number one sin of the nation of Israel. Falling into idolatry again and again. Falling into the pagan practices of the day, no matter where they were. They always seem to adopt the other false gods and the idols of that land. We know that's a second commandment. Do not make any graven image of nothing in heaven or nothing on the earth. Not only just to worship it. You can't say that this is God because that's not who God is And we see this in scripture, that these idols are dumb. They are blind. They do not speak. And this is exactly what the Psalms say in Psalm 115, 4 through 8. What are these idols? The psalmist says their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. You know how puny your God is? You have to make him. My God made all there is in six days. He spoke the world into existence. No one ever made him. He has no beginning or ending. But you make your own God? Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths. But they do not speak. Eyes. But do not see. They have ears. But do not hear. Noses. But do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Again, when you compare an idol to the true and living God, it is really ridiculous when you think about it. And those who make them become like them, yeah, you are what you worship, right? You, You are what you worship. You become dumb and deaf and blind and mute and unuseful to the true and living God by your idolatry and your falsehood. And this was Paul's message everywhere he went. Repent and turn from idols to the true and living God. Paul repeatedly shared this truth everywhere he went. Matter of fact, he commends the Thessalonians in chapter 1. He says that their faith is going out everywhere to the world 
Everyone has heard what has happened there in Thessalonica. They have heard that you have turned from idols to the true and living God. So you can see the, the conflict that some of these Corinthians are having. Paul has told us idols are bad. So why are we eating meat that was used in the worship of those idols? Something is confusing here to me. And this is why they're asking Paul this question. We know that idols aren't real. We know there's only one God. They don't want to fall trap to generations that had come before them who did worship these gods. They didn't want to fall back to their previous lifestyles where they were idolaters. One of the stories that I love from the Old Testament is Elijah on Mount Carmel. When he's mocking the false god of Baal, Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he's about to be killed by them if he does not prove that God is true. So Elijah puts them to the test. And he says, I'll tell you what. Why don't you guys make up an altar and you call down fire from heaven. I'll call down fire from heaven. And whoever God burns up the offering first is the true God. And you know the story and I love it so much. Elijah even lets them go first because he knows what's going to happen. Nothing. (laughs) He lets them go first. And they call down fire from heaven from Baal. And they're falling on the altar. They're even cutting themselves to motivate Baal to rain down this fire. And nothing happens. Look at 1 Kings 18, 26. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Maybe speak a little bit louder. Maybe you're just not speaking loud enough. Maybe he can't hear you. Either he is musing. Oh, maybe he's just, you know, watching TV or something. Or he is relieving himself. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Or he's on a journey. Maybe your God's on vacation. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they crowd, cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Because Baal is fake. There is no such thing as Baal. There is no such thing as idols. Read the idol, true gods behind these statues. This is what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. We know that idols aren't real. And even you are saying that. We get it. And of course, the rest of the story, Elijah comes up. He soaks the altar. He soaks the offering. Because, yeah, you know, it's really easy to burn things that are wet. And after soaking it for three different times, he prays to heaven. God consumes the sacrifice and altar. And the prophets of Baal ran away for their lives. The prophets of Baal are really a non-profit organization. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. Love you too. 
So yes, idols aren't real. Idols are not real. So Paul says, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, it's the eating of food offered to idols. We know an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. We all know that. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all are all things, and from whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Yeah, those gods aren't real, but we know who the true God is. We know that God has revealed himself as Father, and everything comes from him. Even the meat that is being used for that idol, God gave that meat. God created that. That belongs to the Lord. The psalm that we read today. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right? The earth and all those who dwell within. God owns it all. Even the meat that is being used in these idolatrous practices. But not only God the Father. But for us there's also one Lord. Now look what he does here. Very important for you witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses, to Mormons, to other people who deny that Jesus Christ is God. He gives the same attributes and the same uh, qualities to Jesus as he does to God the Father. Look, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, that's what he just said about the Father, and through whom we exist Paul is proclaiming the deity of the Lord Jesus by this passage. And don't you let any Jehovah's Witness or Mormon convince you otherwise that the Bible doesn't claim such things. It's right there, and I could show you a thousand other places as well. In Jesus, everything comes, and for him we exist, and we have our being. He equates the glory and majesty of the Father with Jesus. Oh, yes. The Bible makes this very clear. Jesus was more than just a good man. He was more than just a good person. He's more than just a good teacher. If he was just those things, as so many people claim to believe, we would be lost and dead in our sins. He is far more than that. He is the eternal God. He is a part of the triune God. He is God the Son In the beginning was the Word, John says. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things, here we go, were made through him, John says. That's what Paul just said about Jesus in this passage. And without him was not anything made that was made. Christ is the creator. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 1.15. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn meaning first of importance. The heir of all things. For by him all things were created. Here he says it again. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. 
It all belongs to Jesus. He is the king of this universe. He is the creator. He is the only Lord. And all things flow from him. So yes, this is true. Idols aren't real. There's only one true God. And this true God we know as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, you have the freedom to eat this meat. Because we know that the gods they're being offered to don't exist. But he says in verse 7, However, even though that is true, not all possess this knowledge. Even though that is true, not everyone knows that. Who doesn't know it? Well, look. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Apparently, there were some newer believers in Corinth who still struggled with this idea of idolatry. They had been to that temple many times. They had worshipped those gods. This is what Paul says. Through former association, they used to belong to the temple. They went to all the parties. They ate the meat. They did all the sacrifices. They met the pagan priests. They did it all. They were formerly associated, but now they've repented and they've left. But in their minds, in their consciences, they have yet to be able to separate that those idols are not real. They're still learning. They're still growing in their faith in Jesus. Their consciences are weak. And so when they see people eat that meat, they do not yet understand that the gods behind that don't exist. Everybody should know this. They're still learning and growing. They're still coming out of that past life. And they cannot see past it. They don't yet know that if they eat that meat, it won't affect them. So their consciences, and the word conscience just means with knowledge. That's what the word conscience means, with knowledge. They don't yet have the knowledge that what? Idols aren't real. And yet, they may know the true God is God. But they cannot separate the two. They're not strong enough yet to eat, to go to a party at someone's house, have a barbecue in the backyard, and say, uh, where do you serve them for dinner? Oh, I don't, don't you know I'm a Christian? I'm, I used to do that, but I can't do that anymore. That, that, that's going to set, that's going to, no, you can't, I can't. Because that might set them back to their old pagan lifestyle. That may cause them to stumble. Hmm. They may think that in their souls that they're actually worshiping those gods just by having a barbecue at your house. And all you did is went to Publix and bought the steak. Paul says, listen, food will not commend us to God. You're not any more holier because you had that hamburger. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Food is food. Eating food isn't going to make you more spiritual. Not eating isn't going to make you less or more spiritual either. God isn't looking down at you and say, oh, look at their diets. These people are so righteous. Let me forgive them more. Food does not have any spiritual substance to it. And remember, the popular belief at this time is because of the demonic activity behind some of these false gods. Some people literally believed, and this is why the priests burned half of that uh, sacrifice, is that there were demons in the meat. And so that if you ate that meat, you would ingest and digest a demon. Kind of crazy. This is why Paul is saying, you're not better off if you do. You're not better off if you don't. Food won't make you more spiritual. Food won't make you more acceptable to God. Food is food. But even though that's true, and I think of Peter in Acts chapter 10. Remember Peter? Grew up Jewish man. Jewish boy. Jews have laws from Moses. Law of God. Do not eat this kind of food. Don't eat pork. Don't eat um, all these different rules. Things with hooves, things with scales, all these different things. You can eat this, you can't eat this. And so Peter in Acts chapter 10 has this dream from God where God brings down a blanket full of all the food he wasn't supposed to eat. And God says, eat, Peter. And Peter's like, what are you telling me? I, I, I was told my whole life not to eat all that. I can't do that. And God says, eat. What I've said is clean. Don't you call unclean. And of course, that had more significance behind it about, about Jews and Gentiles and the relationship between the two and how Gentiles are not unclean because they're not Jewish and all that kind of stuff. But again, part of the dietary rituals of this day, people considered themselves to be more spiritual if they did something rather if they didn't. And Paul says, that's foolish. Don't be deceived by that. But take care, he says, continuing on, verse 9, but take care that this right of yours, oh, that's a word that we like as Americans, right? Rights. But take care that this right of yours to what? Eat the meat? Does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Or take care means be careful, pay attention. Even though you have the freedom, even though you have the right to do this, that doesn't give you the authority or the right to let somebody else fall because of you because they don't know any better. This is where the topic of knowledge and love comes back into the equation. Knowledge might say, I have the right to eat this meat and I'm going to enjoy this steak no matter who says anything about it. That's prideful. That inflates our egos. And that's where love comes in. Love builds up, he says earlier, verse 4 and 3. Love builds up. It constructs. It edifies. It's 
has the proper knowledge. We're not dismissing truth, but we're using the truth that we have to also build on one another up. And the other way is true as well. We exercise love with the right knowledge. But by your freedom, Corinthians, are you seeking to destroy your brother? Are you trying to help them? Are you exhibiting the patience that is necessary for this new believer or this person who's having this struggle to, to teach them that, hey, man, you're not going to go to hell if you enjoy this cheeseburger. You're okay. You're okay. Or are you letting your sinful pride spring up and considering your freedom, your rights, more important than their soul? For, Paul says, and here's a connecting word, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, because remember, there was, the, there was the worship part of it. Obviously, Paul would never condone that, that you're going to the temple to worship this God. He would never condone that. But sometimes there would be weddings and festivals and parties that, that would happen at the temple with the leftover meat. And Paul is going to discourage them from eating at the temple altogether. Even though the meat's not bad, don't go to the parties at the temple to eat the meat. Even though the meat's fine, bro, that's the wrong place to eat that. Because if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not also be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? Someone might say, oh man, I, I, I can't do that. I can't. Wait a minute. <gasps> There's brother so-and-so. He's eating that steak at the temple. Maybe I should change my mind about this. Maybe I should go to do that as well. Maybe it's not so bad after all. And then he justifies his actions by your example. Even though you had the right to eat the meat, but by being in the temple, you send the wrong message. And by that, you're going to send that brother right back into idolatry. You're going to send that brother right back to his past life. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. The weaker brother being the one who is not so strong with the proper knowledge. If that's the case, then you need to exercise love and build them up instead of using your freedom to tear them down. Paul's saying if you're invited to the pagan temple for someone's birthday and they're having a barbecue and someone who, you, who used to live like that sees you, that's not a good thing because you could really destroy that person, make them fall right back to the old lifestyle that they used to live and they may never come out of it because of you. And what have you done to your brother if you allow that to happen? That's not loving. You've just hated him for the sake of your own pride. For the sake of your own so-called rights. What do you profit by harming your brother who has the weaker conscience? And then Paul puts it really in perspective for us. The brother for whom Christ died. Whoa. That's a whole new way to see this whole thing. Instead of saying, 
man, that guy is so annoying. He just doesn't get it. Doesn't he know that he'd be having a good time with me if he's a brother for whom Christ died? We must see people for who they really are. The Lord has taught you. The Lord has encouraged you. But my brothers and sisters who don't have maybe this knowledge yet of their freedom have also been purchased by the blood of Christ. What, What do we do with things that have been purchased with a huge price tag? You cherish them. You guard them. You put them in a safe, something that you have a huge investment in or something that's very valuable or, or special to you, you protect. You're not going to let it get damaged. You're not going to let it get stolen because it's irreplaceable. Paul says, the person that you're seeking to destroy by your freedom, do you realize what has been purchased for their own soul? The blood of the Son of God. The blood of the Messiah. Christ died for that brother. That you don't care about his soul. You don't care about his sanctification. You don't care about his lifestyle. Because you just want what you want and that's it. Wow. How much do we value our brothers and sisters over our freedom? We may have the right to do something, but we must exercise caution. How valuable are people? How valuable are your fellow believers? If Jesus laid down his life for them, Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for your brother and sister. Jesus hung on that cross while the wrath of God was poured upon him. The wrath of God for your sin and my sin was poured upon Christ. And we're going to let that brother fall back into that sin? Because we have the Supposed freedom to do something? What are we saying about how we value the cross? We don't value it very much. If that is our position. This reminds me of something that Paul says earlier in chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I think the same would apply here. I have the right to do this. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So is the brother that you might stumble back into their old lifestyle. The modern applications of this obviously are many. Last week, we used the example, of course, of alcohol. And, but there's many other things that Christians disagree about in the matters of Christian liberty. 
We're not going to belabor the point to give multiple examples because I'm sure that you could think of something. That there's something in the life of a person that reminds them of their former life that would open wide the gates of temptation that might not necessarily be wrong, but they fall back into that because of your example. Even though your example might be innocent, your example might be legitimate, that you have the right to do something. We need to exercise extreme caution for the love of other people who are the weaker brothers in this case, as Paul mentions. Why? They've been bought with a price. And so we don't want things of high value purchased with the blood of Christ to be damaged Hurt, defiled, devalued. No. And so in the, when it comes to Christian freedom, we must ask the question, how valuable are my brothers and sisters? If Jesus laid down his life for them and died for their sins, absorbing God's wrath for them, then why can't I lay aside my liberty to love and build them up? Jesus laid down his life. He was innocent, but yet was treated as if he were the sinner. Jesus had every right because he was righteous to say, I ain't dying for them. But in obedience to his father, in obedience to his father, he came, laid down his supposed rights and said, I will glorify my Father by dying and purchasing them with my own blood. Therefore, Christian liberty must be driven again, not just by knowledge, by a love of your brothers, because Christ has loved them as well. We must ask the question, is my freedom in this area, is it worth hurting these people is it worth hurting them falling back into cycles of sin that they may never be able to recover from because he says here thus if you do so thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak you sin against Christ So to make your brother stumble over your supposed freedom, you not just sin against them, you also sin against the one who shed his blood. May we never do that. May we reconsider these things in light of the truth of this passage. Because our grand example is Christ. We must always look to him. How did Jesus think of others? And we're talking, friends, about matters of Christian liberty. We're not talking about clear-cut black and white sins that the scripture says, this is wrong, don't do it. If you love your brother, you tell them not to do it. We're talking about the weaker brother. Paul also examines this in Romans chapter 14. You can take a look at that sometime during this week. Examine Romans 14 for more matters of Christian liberty as he helps the Romans understand that. Again, our example is Christ, so let's ask the question, what did Jesus do? 
Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, in his great and glorious majestic passage of his finished work and his humility, this is what Paul says to the Philippians. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I have the right to do that. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It is by nature, brothers and sisters, that we want to consider ourselves most important. We want to consider our rights to be protected above all other people's rights. That comes by nature because we are selfish at the core. We are greedy at the core. We'd rather step on everyone else so that we get our ways. But that's not the ways of our Savior. Instead, he says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Selfishness is easy. Greed is easy. But if you know your brother or sister struggles in this area and they could stumble, oh, be very cautious to think of them more than you do yourself. And so then Paul concludes with verse 13. He says this, therefore, here's, here's his conclusion in chapter 8. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble if that's what's going to make him fall count me out I'll I'll have another plan to eat because my brother or sister is more valuable to me than what I put in my stomach to gratify my own desires that is humility. That is the Christian way. We also need to be very careful that we don't fall legalistic 
as well. For there's many people who try to make lots of rules of things the scriptures never commend rules about. And then they try to bind your conscience saying that you don't have the liberty to... No, we must not do that either because that many weaker brothers play that game as well using the scriptures for legalistic ends. We can't do that. We're talking about matters of Christian liberty that are not clear cut in the scriptures. They're not, and Paul makes it very clear. Food will not commend you to God. You're no better off if you eat, no better, no worse if you don't. So why are you making such a big deal about your freedom to hurt your brothers and sisters. That's Paul. They're arguing whether they can eat or not eat. And Paul says, hey, 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 stop. Do you realize what you're doing to one another? Oh, you guys are acting in selfish pride. You're missing the point. If food makes my brother stumble, count me out. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Oh, may we see this example from God's word about how to conduct ourselves with these matters of liberty. And may we think of one another more than our own selves as our great example our Lord did for us and to all he encountered in his life. He is the righteous one. He is the holy one. It is him who we must imitate. He is our standard. It is by his life that we will be judged. So imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. He died for sinners. Absorbing the full weight of the wrath of God. And then rose again on the third day. So that he could be exalted. His humility led to his exaltation. May God give us the patience and the knowledge and the wisdom and the perseverance and the strength and the spirit to do such things as we encounter them. For his glory. Which, by the way, two chapters later, Paul is still making this argument. And there's a verse you know very well that we're going to get to eventually, sometime. In chapter 10, 31... How does Paul conclude the whole thing? Therefore, whether therefore you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's where all of this is headed towards. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Father, may... I pray that it has been proclaimed as truthful to this text as possible. That it has given instruction to your people for their good and sanctification. Father, I pray for those who are not yet born again, who do not have your spirit, who do not know you, God, that they would see this beautiful passage and see the beauty of the Lord Jesus who died for sinners like them. That if they believe and repent of their sins and trust in the finished work of Christ, that he died and rose again, that they could be forgiven and set free from their sin. Oh God, use your holy word to open up hearts and eyes that are blinded to your glory this morning.
And Father, with these issues of Christian liberty, help us to continue to see the truth in chapter 9 and chapter 10 as we continue to see Paul's argument continuing to build until he concludes it with, do it all for the glory of God, no matter what you do. Help us now, God, as we close this service on this Lord's Day. May we know who you are. May we find rest for our souls. May we find rest for our bodies. May we spend time with our families around the word in prayer and in service to one another. We love you, Lord. Help us now be with your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this closing hymn before we're dismissed. God bless you. Thank you so much for attending our worship this morning. Pray that you've been encouraged. Let us know if we can help you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't know what the gospel is, please stay and talk to us. We'd love to show you how you could be saved today. If you need any, any other help, any prayer, please also see us. We'd love to pray for you. Let's sing. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone.